Amen. You may be seated. If you would bow with me in prayer, and then we're going to go back into Acts together today. But let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have here together. We thank you uh, for these words that we get to sing as we gather together. And uh, we do thank you uh, for your grace. We thank you that you love us, that you care for us, that it is truly nothing but the blood of Jesus that we stand together. And so we thank you for these things. Uh, We pray this morning that as we open your word, that you would teach us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us in all truth. Uh, We just confess that we cannot do this without you. We ask that you would be the one that teaches us, that guides us, uh, that, that softens our hearts, that applies the truth of your word to it. I pray that you would help us to see clearly Uh, Just your immense grace and the way that you love us, the way that you call us to you. We pray this morning as we think about how you work and and what you do, that you would just show us so clearly uh, the ways that we are to go out and to love others in light of that. And so we just pray that you'd be glorified, that we would lift you up uh, this morning, that it would be uh, to make much of you in our time here together. Uh, We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I don't know how many of you, uh, probably the last, I'm kind of guessing here, maybe the last two years or so, maybe a little bit longer, have seen some of the videos and pictures and things that have come out of uh, Syria and Iraq around uh, ISIS and what's happening around the world today. This this awful um, militant group that has gone out and, and just showed a complete in utter disregard for human life to the point that it's staggering. And, 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 I, and I say that about seeing the videos and the pictures and those things. And to be honest, I, I hope you haven't seen them. Uh, because what you see is just uh, almost overwhelming. How awful some of the things are that are going on. And, and as you see those things or you read headlines or you read stories about what's happening. Or if you have seen some of those, those photos or those videos Uh, It's hard to believe that in this 2017 that that's still happening and it's still going on. But it's a very real thing that is happening in our world right now. And uh, I want us just to think for a moment, like, what are some of the heart issues that lead to that? Like, Like, how in the world is this happening and why is it happening and what's going on there that you could see people who are who are so taken with the system of belief that they are willing to kill those that disagree with them. And not only those that disagree with them, but anyone that doesn't bow down to what they're saying, they will brutally murder. And it's a hard thing to get your head around. And I was thinking about what has, has led to that. And I think one of the things is, is they have some deeply held beliefs that they're holding to, um, at, at least some of them. Uh, I don't know if it, it applies to all of them that are connected to this, but at least some of them believe they're right. Uh, they actually believe in what they're doing. Uh, as sad as it is to me that some even believe that they're representing God in this. And so I, I think you'd have to start there that there's some deeply held beliefs that they think they're right. And, and the truth is, even if we step aside from that for a second, all of us have different deeply held beliefs that we think are right. That we would put forward as this is the way we should live and this is what it looks like. And that's whether you're Christian or or you're Muslim, or you're Buddhist, or you're atheist, or whatever it is, we all have different beliefs that we hold on to, and we think they're right. And I think that's part of it. But then uh, what you believe about how you share that truth, or you propagate it, or you spread it, 
or you do away with those that disagree with it. However you see that, you have to have some beliefs that inform the way you then live with those people around you. And so what we believe about how people are changed and how those things go out and how we share what we believe and how we see people be changed in those things, what we believe about how that happens greatly influences us in how we go about what we do. I don't know if you've ever considered that or thought about that, but even as Christians, we've been talking about here in the book of Acts, and we're going to go back to Acts chapter 9 today. We've been working our way through the book of Acts. And Acts tells the story of the early church, that Jesus' life, death, resurrection, right before his ascension, he says to uh, the 120 followers that are there, go make disciples, go be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, spread the good news of what Jesus has done. And so they go and they begin to do that. And that's what we see in Acts. We see it going across cultural lines. We see it spreading out. We see it going. But one of the things that we need to consider as we do it is how do we believe that happens? Right? Because deeply held beliefs that we want to share with others, and I'm assuming that as Christians, those that have come to understand the faith uh, that we hold to of what God has done and the way he's revealed himself to Jesus, that we take seriously that he tells us to go be witnesses, to make disciples, to spread this good news. And so it's important for us to consider how we believe that happens. You know, we look at different things going on in the world, like what's happening in Syria right now, and they believe spreading what they believe is very different than what the Bible calls us to. And so I want you just to think about how do you think that happens, right? Because how we believe that happens is going to shape how we do it, right? For example, if we think we can argue someone into faith, if I just have the right arguments and I have all the answers and I can answer all their objections and I can have these, these interactions and I can argue people into faith, then I'm probably going to be in a lot of arguments, right? If I'm, if I'm serious about sharing my faith and I believe that's how it happens, then I'm probably going to be doing that a lot. Or if, if I believe that I can scare people into faith. And I don't say that lightly. Like if, if I can present to them a picture that is awful enough apart from God and how Jesus saves them from that, maybe I can scare them into faith. Is that what we're called to do? Is that the way it works? Or, or maybe we begin to think if we can eliminate those that think differently from us, try to keep them away or try to keep them out, then maybe that's the way to do it. Right? And we see that sometimes even within the church. Uh, I grew up with, with the kind of joke in youth groups and different things, the holy huddle. Right? We'll get together with other Christians and we'll huddle up and we'll keep everybody safe and we'll keep the bad stuff out and we'll be together and that's how it works. And so that's the question. Is that how it works? Should we get all the believers together and keep out all the bad things? Or maybe a, a further step in that same line of thinking is you eliminate all the bad things uh, by not letting them in, but maybe it's just getting rid of them all together. Because isn't that kind of what ISIS is doing? If you don't agree with us and you don't believe us, then we'll just chop your head off. And so is that how it works? And so I, I want to just pose that question because I want you to think about our beliefs on how we see that happening and how that working is going to shape the way that we move out and begin to share our faith. And so today we're going to look at a really famous story, I think, probably the most famous conversion story in the Bible. And it's a man named Saul, who will later be known as Paul. 
And we see this in Acts chapter 9. And so if you want to turn to Acts chapter 9, that's where we're going to be this morning. Actually, you can flip over to the the beginning of 8, even the very end of 7, because we're going to hit on a couple things there before we jump into chapter 9. But as we look at Saul's conversion, who will later be called Paul. So if I say Paul or I slip in there, it's the same person. Don't be confused by that. He's Saul here in the passage, but God's going to change his name later. And he's going to go by Paul in a little bit. But right now, Saul. And if you know anything about Saul, what we're going to see here is uh, he, he, he was actually like ISIS. I don't know if you've ever considered that before, but Saul was actually a terrorist. He was a fundamental religious terrorist that was for persecuting people who thought differently than he did. And you see that in the Bible. And I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way, but there's this incredible thing that God chooses to use a terrorist and then he has him write half of the New Testament. It's kind of a perplexing thing if you stop and think about it. Or or I used to hear someone uh, say this. Uh, I don't remember where it was from. It was in a book I read many years ago. They said, if you don't believe that God can save a terrorist, you need to rip out half of the New Testament. Right? Which, that's true. And so I, I start there with thinking about what we believe and even what we see Saul doing here and what he believes about how he spreads the truth as he sees it and what the beliefs that were holding that up. And so I want us to look at this conversion and think about what God's doing and how we are saved and what this teaches us. About that, And so this is the way I want us to look at Acts chapter 9 and the first half of Acts chapter 9. It's first thing I want us to consider is that God chooses to use a terrorist. just want us to consider that fact for a second. And then secondly, why would God use this man and how does he change him? So why would he do that? And then how does he change him? And then lastly, I want us to consider when we see the why... And the how of what God's doing, I think it has a great impact and effect on how we share our faith and how we live today. And so, God uses a terrorist. Why? And how does he change them? And then what impact does that have on us today? So let's just consider God chooses to use a terrorist. And I just want to ask, does that seem over the top to call Paul a terrorist? And we go, well, that's a, come on, that's just a little bit just trying to make it sound better. Uh, sensationalizing it a little bit. Is it fair to call Saul a terrorist? Is that just for effect? Well, we'll listen to what it says at the end of chapter 7. So if you were with us two weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 7. It is the, the stoning or the martyrdom of Stephen, the very first Christian martyr who's killed for his faith as he's proclaiming the gospel. And so you get to the end of chapter 7, and I'm going to pick up in verse 58. And they cast him outside of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so there we are. We're introduced to Saul for the first time in verse 58 of chapter 7. That he is there looking on at Stephen Stephen being martyred for his faith, for proclaiming the gospel. And then if you look at the beginning of chapter 8, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. He didn't just happen to be there. He was there in full agreement with what was going on, and he approved of the execution. And then it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. 
But so he's there for Stephen's death. It says he approves of it. And then he ramps it up and he begins to persecute the church. Uh, if we're to use Luke's word here, he was ravaging the church, dragging them off to prison. Now look at the beginning of chapter 9. Right, so we're introduced to Saul and then we follow Philip going and crossing cultural boundaries that we looked at last week as he shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. He shares the gospel in Samaria, and then we kind of come back to Saul's story. Chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so there you have the introduction to Saul. Is it unfair to call Saul a terrorist? I mean, what we see him doing is approving of murder, dragging people out of their houses, ravaging the church, breathing threats and murders against the disciples. And now he's gone and gotten authority that he can officially arrest people. And I read that of what it says of Saul, and it sounds a lot like ISIS today. Sounds a little bit like Nazi Germany, dragging people out of their house, putting them in prison for their beliefs. And so you start to see this picture of this man and who he is. But then as we read on, look at what it says in verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And so here's this guy dragging people out of their homes, approving of executions, murderous threats, all these things, and God blinds him as he's walking down the street on the road to Damascus. Verse 4, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, by seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I want you to think about what was going through his mind. Three days, all that God says to him is, You're persecuting me. I am Jesus who you're persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. That's all he's got. And for three days... He can't see anything, doesn't eat, he sits there, and that's all he's got. He's got Jesus saying to him, why are you persecuting me? It's me, Jesus, and now go into the city and wait. So can you think for just a second what that was like? If your entire existence was bent on persecuting those that were following Jesus, and then Jesus reveals himself to you, I would think at the very least it would be radically humbling. Have you ever been really, really sure of something? Right? To the point that you argue with people about it. You tell them how sure you are. You talk about it and then very publicly you find out you're completely wrong. Right? I mean, that's kind of what just happened here. He's going into all these places and he's persecuting the church and he's doing it with great vigor and conviction everywhere he goes. And God stops him in his tracks. And I can't help but wonder when those three days, and we can read this in the Bible, and, and we've been talking about how to study your Bible in the equipping hour. 
But sometimes we gloss over that. What was it like for three days to sit there blinded, waiting? Right? God says, go wait. Then you'll hear what to do. And he's waiting. He's kind of scary, I think. I'm sure there was a lot of reflection on everything he thought he knew. And so he waits. But then look at what happens. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he's seen a vision a man of a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who come, who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he arose and he was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was in, with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed at this. Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And he has not come here for this purpose, but to bring them back. Has he not come here to bring them for this purpose, bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And so you've got this guy who's literally a terrorist, who's approving of murders and dragging people out and persecuting them for Jesus' name. And Jesus comes and blinds him, sends him to this place, and then within days he stands up and he begins to proclaim the gospel. And you see that, and here you have this terrorist that suddenly is turned around in this way. And so the question that comes to my mind is God chooses to reveal himself to this terrorist, but why? Of all the people that he could have used, why this guy in this way? And in fact, when I read the text, I kind of immediately identify with Ananias. It tells us Ananias was a disciple who lived in Damascus. Who's a guy who's a believer. He loves the Lord. And God comes to him, speaks to him, and he says, here I am, Lord. And he says, go over and find this guy, Saul, from Tarsus. And he says, uh, for behold, he is praying and he's seen a vision of you coming to pray for him. Right? So can you imagine? You know who Saul is says here that he knows who he is his reputation precedes him and so what does ananias say he says uh lord i have heard from many about this man and how much evil he's done to your saints in jerusalem it's almost comical if you think about it god speaks to ananias and says i want you to go over and meet this guy and pray for him and he goes yeah but do you know who you're sending me to Right. 
I don't mean to, to be uh, doubting what you're saying, God, but are you sure you know who this is? He says, this guy's been persecuting people and you want me to go over there and pray for him. Are you sure about that? Right? He's asking, like, uh, why? Like, what are you doing here? And I think that's a, a, a fair question to ask. And so God tells him, I want you to go there and to pray for him. And he says, I want you just to go. And so Ananias does, and he's obedient. But he asks the question first. And I think if we're honest, a lot of times we're like Ananias. We see what Scripture tells us. We see what God has said. We see the clear commands. But then we go, "Ah, I don't know about that. Are you sure that's what you want? And so he does go. But I can't help but think of the times when we don't. That God calls us, he tells us things clearly in his word. And so God has spoken to us very much in the same way through his word today. We have clear commands of the things he tells us. We're told to to help uh, widows and orphans. Uh, We're to help those in deepest need. We're to welcome people in that are struggling, that need help. You see this all throughout the Bible. In fact, we see this image of what the kingdom looks like is loving and meeting people in the midst of their needs. And yet today we can say, uh, yeah, but God, do you know what country they're coming from? Are you sure about that? Yeah, I see widows and I see orphans and I see people running from horrible things. But God, do you know where they're coming from? Do you know what they're like? And oftentimes we let the pragmatic, practical things stand over the things that God clearly has said. And we can do just like Ananias. We can go, not sure about that. But Ananias goes. He obeys God. And he goes and he prays for Saul. And as he does, he lays his hands on him and he prays for him. And it says, these scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he arose and he's baptized. And so his fear was legitimate, was it not? I mean, everything he knew of Saul, I, I don't blame him for going, are you sure you want me to go there? But he obeys and God shows up and he does this work and And he begins to transform Saul. But it still leaves the question, why Saul? Why a terrorist? Why someone like this? And I can't help but think when God says, and he says here, did you catch the way he says this? He is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. The murderous terrorist who's throwing people into jail and persecuting people in Jesus' name, God says, that's my chosen instrument. I think it's okay to ask, okay, why is that? And I can't help but think when we read Ephesians 2 this morning and laying that kind of over this passage as we look at it. If you know anything about Ephesians, who wrote Ephesians? Saul, who will later become Paul, he'll write that about 20 years after this. And he's talking about what it looks like to be apart from God at the beginning. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince 
of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's not only a description of all of us apart from Christ, but I can't help but think that Paul uses this conception or this formula multiple times. He uses it in Titus 3 as well, says almost the exact same thing. That Paul knew that that was him. That's a perfect uh, description of what we see as Saul sets off on the road to Damascus. Following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now work and the sons of disobedience. Breathing murderous threats. Throwing people into jail. Approving of executions of those that thought differently than he did. Is that not a perfect example of everything that Saul was doing? Yet, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul's dead, spiritually speaking. He's opposing God. He's persecuting those that would follow Jesus, but God being rich in mercy blinds him as he's walking on the road and says, what are you doing? And he causes him to become alive. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so when you see when God says that Saul is his chosen vessel and you go, why? Because God knew so clearly that when he grabs Saul in this way and he sends this man out with the gospel message. Right? Saul, later Paul, becomes one of the greatest, if not the greatest evangelists who ever lives. And he plants churches and he proclaims the gospel and he goes to really hard places. He's beaten within inches of his life. He's stoned. He's rejected. He's shipwrecked. He's all these things. And God chooses him. And the reason I think he chooses him is he so perfectly illustrates what happens in every single one of us in our hearts when God does this work. Paul knew undoubtedly that he was dead in his trespasses and sins. He knew that he was so opposed to the things of God. And he knew that it was a gift of God that caused him to become alive in Christ. And he saw it. But what we see in this story in Acts chapter 9 and the conversion of Saul is a living, breathing, literal interpretation of what happens to every single one of us spiritually. We are dead We are apart from Christ. We are opposing Him. And it takes a grace of God, a gift that He would cause us to become alive. And so you go, well, why would Paul be the chosen instrument to go and tell people this? Because he knew it so clearly. There was nothing in Paul that would have been like, I was a pretty good person. And so that's why God chose to use me to to share the gospel. I mean, he's literally walking down the road to go throw his next Christians in jail. 
He's literally walking down the road of who am I going to get today? Breathing murderous threats. And God opens his eyes to say, this is who I am. And so when you read Ephesians 2 and it says it's not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Paul knew this. He knew it so clearly. And when you understand that, then it begins to to flesh out, well, that's how God saves. It's by his grace. And when you see that, you start to see that there's no one that's too far gone. There's no one that, no, 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 God can't reach them because he knows that he's reached him. He knows that he's, I know that he's reached me. And when we begin to see that, we start to see how clearly how this works. That it's by the grace of God that he does it. Now you get down to the end here and it says uh, in verse 21. So Acts 9 verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed and says, "Is is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? They're like, wait a second. This is the guy that was just killing people and throwing them in jail. And now he's proclaiming Jesus. And when we ask the question, why does God use Saul? I think mistakenly we can say, well, man, it makes a great testimony. This is what he was. And now look at who he is. And that's such a great picture. In fact, oftentimes when we tell our testimony, that's the way we do it. We go, oh, what a great testimony. And somebody says, hey, I was this and I was this bad and I used to do this, but now I'm pretty good and I do this and I do this and I do this. And they and they say, I was this and now I'm this. And they go, oh, what a wonderful testimony. But I don't think that's what God was doing. I don't think that's why Saul was his chosen vessel. I think it's because he saw so clearly that it wasn't him that turned his life around. It was completely and totally by the grace of God and nothing else. There was no mistaking that I was pretty bad and then I took the the sayings and the teachings of Jesus and I worked them into my life and I got better. It was, I am a murderous terrorist who's out to kill people and only by the grace of God, he opened my eyes to see this. And so there's no place to go except it's all Jesus and nothing else. And so if you look closely in Ephesians chapter 2, It says in verse 5 and 6, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Even when we were dead. Is that not a perfect representation of what Paul was doing? Spiritually speaking, he was completely dead. But while he was dead, God stopped him in his tracks and he made him come alive. But then if you go further into Ephesians 2, in verse 8, it says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. And so I just want to ask a question there. What is the this referring to? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. You say, well, grace, grace is not my own doing. I think if you look closely at the text, and the grammar and the, Paul, the, the point that Paul is making there, he says even the faith is not your own doing, it's a gift of God. Is it grace or is it faith? And the answer is it's both. Sometimes we say we're saved by grace through faith. That's true. 
But I think sometimes we, we break it out as like the grace was God's part and the faith was my part. No, no, no. Your faith is by grace. God graciously gives you faith. It's still grace. It's all God. And this story shows us so clearly that that's exactly what happens here. That God was gracious to Paul when he didn't deserve it. But the truth is, that's the story of every single person who's ever come to faith. It's just in the extreme here, it strips away all the other ways you think it could have been. But that's the same for us. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's all God's doing that he allows you to see that. And so when we get that, and I think that's why God chooses Saul. To show us how this works. And then he set Saul to go out and proclaim the gospel because he would know so emphatically that it was always what God had done. And that's why this chosen vessel to go to these places. And so the last thing I want us to consider is when we have this, when we understand this with depth and clarity, it changes everything. It changes because now we see how this works. It doesn't work by me arguing people into faith. It is a gift of God by grace that we're saved. And so when I begin to see that, I see that it's the grace of God is what has changed me and has changed you. And that's the way it works. His grace to you allows you to see it. And so that means that you can't change people by excluding them or keeping them out. It doesn't mean that you can change people by arguing them into faith. It doesn't mean that you can change people by scaring them real good so that they'll come to faith. It's a gift of God by the grace of God. And so what does that mean for us? That we have to rely on God for all of it. It means we need to be praying Seeking his faith, asking him to move, that it has to be his work to do it. But then when we talk about practically what does it look like, if you're completely and totally saved by grace, and your faith is by grace, and it is the doing of God, how do you show people what God is like? You be gracious. You love people when they don't deserve it. When people are ugly, you return with kindness. We go, oh no, those people might hurt me. You go, God, I'm scared right now and I'm not sure how this works, but I'm going to trust you and I'm going to show what you're like even in this. And God uses the grace to change people. As we proclaim his name and we point to him and we say it's all him and what he's done, he uses that. And so we recognize that we can't do it, but that God can. And just like you see here, God shows up and he does it. And so we have an opportunity to show people what God is like. To be witnesses. And the way that we do that is we extend the grace that we have received. And we point to him and we say it's all him and he's the only one that can ever do this. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. That you do what we could never do for us. 
that you quicken our hearts to come to life. You give us the ability to put our faith in you. You show us how clearly that you've met all the needs that we had. That you've done all the things that we couldn't do. That you've paid for our sin and our debt. That you've restored us to you and we thank you for that. I pray that we would be people that are overflowing with the grace that you've given us. To each person we come into contact with. That we would see so clearly what you've done. That we would seek to share and show that with those around us. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This is now uh, the time in our service where we worship through our tithes and our offerings.